So it's our heart. Last week we spoke about to see a people, to see all people worship God. That's our purpose. We want to see all people worship God. We want to see individuals, families, and the city of Perth transformed through Jesus. That's our vision. We want to see this city transformed through Jesus. And our mission is um, that we're going to build, that we're going to do this by building a community of people who put Jesus above all and others before ourselves. That's our hearts. That's our purpose, our vision, our mission. And our values are those things we believe so unwaveringly that they shape how we pursue these things. And the first value, the first thing we believe uh, unwaveringly that shapes how we pursue all these things is the gospel. So this morning, I want to talk about the gospel in three ways as we move along quickly. Firstly, I want to talk about, um, I want to state the gospel is good news. The gospel is good news that needs to be gotten. The gospel is good news that needs to be gotten and applied. And we'll quickly race, sorry, we'll go through those quite quickly. So what is the gospel? Firstly, what, what is it? Good news. The gospel is good news. Thanks, love. Um, good news is different to good advice. The gospel is not good advice. It's not a religion trying to give good advice about how you should live or what you should do. The gospel is good news about something that has happened for you, that um, has been done for you. Uh, it's good news, not good advice. Um, and it's news about something that has been done for us by God. Uh, not advice about what God wants from us, news about what God has done for us. William Tyndale said that it is merry, uh, sorry, good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. When's the last time you received news that made you sing and dance and leap for joy? Well, the gospel is that kind of news. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the gospel is the most simple, most clear, most thrilling message that has ever existed. The most thrilling message that has ever existed. Peter says that the angels long to look into the gospel. What news would be so thrilling and good that the angels who live in the presence of God would long to look into it? It's this, the angels long to grasp the very wonder of what God is doing in the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it's simply this, God sent His Son to die in our place. That's the gospel. It's not a complicated thing. It's a simple thing. God has sent His Son to die in our place. Children can understand that. But no one can completely mine all the majesty and beauty that lies within that. The Bible from cover to cover, from beginning to end, I had a bunch of verses to read to you, but just take my word for it, and if you don't, I can give you all the cross-references. From cover to cover says this, the gospel is that God has sent His Son to die in our place. And so the message of the Bible is this, God does everything to redeem those who could add nothing. The gospel message is different to every other message about salvation in our world and in history. The gospel doesn't tell you what you need to do to be saved. It doesn't tell you how many times you need to pray to be saved. It doesn't tell you the levels of heaven that you can get to through the good works that you do. It doesn't tell you that if you are good enough, you'll eventually stop reincarnating and you'll just stop to exist. 
The gospel tells you, but God has done for those who could add nothing. The gospel is good news that must be gotten. Don't be fooled by the fact I'm moving on to number two quite quickly. We're just taking off. <laughs> the gospel is good news that must be gotten. Martin Lloyd-Jones diagnosed that the world, the whole trouble with every generation, the whole trouble with every generation, he, uh, he was a, uh, an incredible preacher, uh, was a medical doctor, was an incredible mind. He preached through Romans. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached through Romans for 12 years and never got to the end. Don't worry, we're not going to try to uh, imitate Martin Lloyd-Jones. All I'm saying is he's an incredible mind and student of the Word. And he's, so when he diagnoses something, he truly believes it. The whole problem with every generation is this. They do not concern themselves with learning the gospel well and being gripped by its message. The problem is the gospel is such a simple thing. Uh, those who are like me, who are, we are Westerners, and knowledge is about something you attain, and as soon as you attain it, you move on. Yeah. I get it. What next? Martin Lloyd-Jones says, no, you don't get it. You can recite it. You can repeat it. You can write it down like Bart Simpson a hundred times on the, on the chalkboard, but you don't yet get it. The gospel is something that we need to um, uh, be gripped by. Think about the gospel as an entire foreign language and culture. Um, and it's not very far off to what it actually is, because the gospel comes to us from heaven, uh, which is a different culture. Um, but by observation, this is just my observation, this is not a judgment, it's my observation, there's about four ways that people who are trying to engage with the gospel, not everyone is, but those who are trying to engage with the gospel, and it's normally people in a church, engage with it. These are the four ways, I think. Number one, there's vague interest. There's those who put, being told about the uh, put up with being told about the gospel for some time. They seem interested in learning uh, about it. Um, and then at some point, interest goes to something else. And it could be interest in anything. It could be interest in a food, uh, uh, like a food as a, as a hobby. It could be interested in something theological, like some debate. It could be interested in some other kind of situation or the sports season changed and they're part of some club or uh, a political situation they get interested in or an economic situation. But something grabs them or they get a boyfriend or girlfriend. Something grabs their interest and they're no longer interested in learning more, much more about the gospel. It's gone. Um, secondly, there's intrigue. Those who hear a whole lot about uh, gospel language and they realize they don't understand it. And I've, this has happened a few times in King's Cross and recently someone came and said, uh, I thought it was the best way to put it, I can see that it's meaningful to you, but I don't get it. I don't understand why. That's wonderful. What an honest claim. I, I, there's intrigue. This is important. This is not just something children learn. There's something deep here. I can, I can see it, but I can't really get it. Can you help me? And, and they've got a bit of motivation to learn it, to read something, to ask questions. They, 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 want, they want to go excavating. What's here that's so precious? Um, then there's a third group of second language users. Um, and th this is a group that after some surface learning, they become somewhat, somewhat fluent in gospel speak. They start to get comfortable with where to drop gospel or gospel centrality in a sentence or a phrase. Uh, it could be a pastor, it could be a community group leader, it could be someone in the church. And they, they feel comfortable with, oh, here's where you 
here's where the moment where you add the gospel. I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I know that's what everyone wants to hear. Um, and so there's this like fluency around the gospel, but it's not applied. And the way that you see that is when you start to hear them praying for people or starting to give advice into difficult situations, it starts to sound like 90% of everything you hear all the time anyway. And you realize, well, it's not really, the gospel hasn't shaped a worldview. It's just a language that's, it's, it's a second language. They've, they've got something, they understand something, but it's not yet shaping the way that they're, they're seeing all of life. Um, and then there's a fourth category, and I, and I really don't know how to describe this category. I battled for a name, so I just picked a name that describes what they're like. And the, uh, Keller talks about a, a humbly, humble confidence or humbly confident. And these are those who the gospel has made them sing and dance and leap for joy. They think the gospel is the most thrilling message they have ever received, and they've begun to understand why the angels long to look into it. Something has happened to them. In other words, they're no longer the students of the gospel. The gospel has captured something inside of them instead of flame. And it doesn't mean they can always, uh, that doesn't mean they get it fully. It doesn't mean they always understand, but, but it's made them come alive. Um, that's Paul's kind of to the Galatians. Who's bewitched you? How could you go to another gospel? Not that it's a gospel anyway, but how could you have turned to another gospel? There's only one gospel. How could you have done that? Paul's kind of going that like, the gospel hasn't gripped you yet. It doesn't make you sing and dance and leap for joy. You think that you can grab some other message and it will get you further down the road. You don't understand what the gospel is to you fully yet. He's not saying they're not saved. He's not saying that they, uh, they're, they're, there's doubts over their uh, eternal salvation. He's simply saying... Um, you haven't yet understood the full beauty of what the gospel is to you. Um, I'm going to tell you a bit of my story. I hope it helps. If not, now's a good time to nod off. I'll see you on the flip side of this. So I was a pastor uh, of a church in Southern California, and we hosted an in- or one of the pastors of the church, and we hosted an international conference. And in one session, my dad, who ironically had come from Australia, and now I'm here and he's there, um, came and spoke, and after the session, my housemate shared that um, this was what he had, his heart had longed to hear for years, um, and that, you know, was the best thing that happened, and, and I couldn't quite understand what he was talking about. I was like, what, what do you mean? Um, I thought he was being nice to me because it was my dad who had spoken, and I didn't really get much out of what my dad had, had shared. Um, I was just glad, you know, that's cool, my dad's sharing at this conference, that's, that's sweet. Um, and uh, he's like, no, th- he spoke about the gospel in a way I've never understood it. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, as I, and I was like, how is this? This is a guy who had led ministries, had preached in front of 10,000 people, had fed the poor, um, had given up his life for the sa- in the name of Jesus. He had lived a completely different life uh, to his family in the name of Jesus and had done great things around the world. And here he was as if he had just got saved again. And I was in the same session thinking, I didn't get that. And then we went home and my housemate said the same thing. And the two of them were like these deers with the headlights, except not in shock, but in awe and wonder. And I felt like this shallow marshmallow of like, what is, what is it with you guys? Like, did, did, you, did you not know Jesus died for us? Is that news to you? And I just didn't get it. And then um, I started uh, noticing that John Piper 
constantly spoke about the gospel. And, and I knew that John Piper was ridiculously smart. And my honest question was, why would someone smart not move on to something more meaty? Um, and I, did, I honestly couldn't figure it out. Why does John Piper keep talking about the gospel? Surely there's other things he wants to speak about. And so I began to read his books and thought that the one that probably would make sense is God is the gospel. and began digesting that one. And then I stumbled into Tim Keller, uh, upon Tim Keller, not into him, uh, another teacher pastor, and I became confused when I read and heard him say, the gospel is not the ABC of Christianity, but the A2Z. And that seemed confusing to me, because I realized in that moment that to me the gospel was where you begin, but it's certainly not where you end. So I began to read more of Keller, starting with Prodigal God and listen to his sermons on Jonah. And I began to read and cry through Sally Lloyd-Jones' children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And then I was like, I felt like an adventurer just lost in the woods. I can't see what everyone's talking about. I can't see what they're, they're saying. I loved, loved Jesus, was giving my life to Jesus, was a pastor in a church, was uh, leading worship, was reading my Bible. There was no... Uh, there's no question of where um, my heart lay, but understanding the gospel wasn't something I, I could figure out what everyone was talking about. And then I was listening to Piper speak about God is the gospel, and suddenly something happened inside of me. I remember exactly where I was sitting at a desk, and my soul suddenly had a song that didn't have words, and a dance that didn't have music, and I was overcome by joy, and the gospel was the most thrilling message I'd ever heard, and... I understood what the angels wanted to see. And I felt like I just got saved, except I knew I'd always been saved. But that was the type of joy that came into my physical experience. Piper challenged me. He said, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you have ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? And my heart was broken and elated at exactly the same moment, realizing that for the first time in my whole life, I realized that heaven was about the presence of Jesus or presence of God, not the other stuff. And I'd never considered that. But at the same time, my heart was elated, realizing that heaven, the definition of it, would be being with God. Wow. Keller showed me that I was a functional Pharisee. It wasn't nice to see this. It's never nice to see this. And, and even today... There's, there's moments day by day where I realize how religious I am and how my heart is bent towards earning rather than receiving. Um, and so I was proud of my choices. As a child, I thought that part of the goodness in my life was due to the good decisions I had made. Part of the favor of God in my life was because of the decisions I'd made for God. And that meant that I looked down onto those who weren't experiencing the same goodness or weren't ex having a relationship with God in the same way kind of thought, well, my decisions are superior to your decisions, and that's why God favors me. 
over you. Uh, um, please don't leave the church because of how sinful my heart is. But that's how it was. And then Keller's simple chart was like a mirror into my religious heart and mind. And he showed religion, I obey, therefore I am accepted. And that's how I felt growing up. I, I always want to do the things that God wants me to do, and that's why He blesses me. But the gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I can obey. Religion says motivation is based on fear and insecurity. If you do the wrong thing, you're out. You're punished. The gospel says my motivation is based on grateful joy. How much He loves me. Oh, how He loves me. What a joy to serve Him. We interviewed someone uh, for an administrative job this week, and we asked them, how, how will you find it to call people to serve in King's Cross? What will that be like for you? And they said, well, I'll tell you what it's like for me. And then they said this. I, I wrote it down, but I'm going to paraphrase it. I don't need uh, your compliments because my father's asked me to serve and he loves to see me serve. And so I love to serve him because I love to uh, bless, uh, see, bless my father. She gets it right there. She gets it. I'm not doing this for you or Josh or anyone else in the church. My father loves seeing me serve. So I love serving. Wow, someone like that can call people to service without shame, without guilt, without burden. They just understand the privilege. And then they finish, they, they finish like this. And so if we have broad shoulders, let's do a lot. And if we have small capacity, let's pray we can do one thing. Wow, they get it. Religion says, I obey in order to get things from God. The gospel says, I obey to get God, to delight and resemble Him. You can see how I didn't get that and how my heart was starting to um, be filled with joy as I understood that. My identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work and how moral I am, and so I must look down on those I perceive lazy or immoral. But in the gospel, my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for me. I am saved by sheer grace and I look down on those, uh, sorry, I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. Only by grace am I what I am. So Sally Lloyd-Jones's children's Bible showed me how the whole Bible was always pointing to God's redemptive work through Jesus that I had missed. It showed me how Noah wasn't about what I feared. In the back of my mind, I never admitted it, but I was so scared that if I was ever in a Noah situation, would I build a ginormous boat in the middle of a desert with people who thought I was insane? I, I, don't, I don't know that I'll do that. Does that. What does that mean? Am I not a good Christian? Do I not love God? And Sally Lloyd-Jones' Bible showed me that Noah was pointing to Jesus, who would obey God fully. And he'd go onto the cross in my place. And through the cross, he'd call all of us to join the cross in faith in him and be saved from the wrath of God against our sin. And I was nervous that I would never be a David who had the faith to face a, a Goliath, a real Goliath. It was nice in a Bible story, but when I really thought about it, I knew how scared I was of fighting in high school. Or I didn't want to fight people. I just wanted to have friends. David was willing to fight a giant. Not only was he willing to fight a giant that he probably had no chance to beat, 
But knowing if he lost, his entire nation would be in slavery to these people. I don't know if I had faith to take on that kind of responsibility. And so I was insecure about my, my faith. Does that mean I'm a bad Christian? Does that mean I don't have a lot of faith? And Sally Lloyd-Jones' Bible showed me how David wasn't pointing to me having enough faith, but pointing to Jesus and how he would go to the cross and faith, face our giants of sin and death. And how through one man, a whole nation of people would be saved. And how through faith in that one man's actions to defeat that sin, we wouldn't face the slavery and mastery of sin and death, but we would be free to live in grace and life. What a relief. And I felt I probably was like Jonah, prejudiced, lazy, and unlikely to go to Nineveh. So what does that mean? Because clearly, in the story, Jonah is not a hero. And Sally Lloyd-Jones helped me see that Jonah was pointing to Jesus and how in his grave he would go into the belly of a whale. He would go face death itself. And that he'd be raised to life miraculously, just as Jonah was spat onto the beach, Jesus would be raised to life miraculously three days later and come out preaching a gospel for all those who didn't deserve it, who couldn't earn it, who were far from God. And all they needed to know is that they just needed to repent and it was finished. Repent and come to him. What a relief. Hence, reading through Sally Lloyd-Jones' Bible to my kids, hiding my tears night after night as their dad, the pastor preacher, began to understand the gospel. Then Michael Eaton, the Bible teacher, expounded Galatians, and I realized I was saved by grace, that I did nothing for it, and that the same grace that got me saved would be the same grace that would lead me home. And I realized I was like the Galatians who thought, I was, who got, maybe I'm saved by grace, but now I've really got to hold on to it. And Michael Eaton showed how grace holds on to us. I went home that night knowing the assurance of my salvation, knowing that, I, that my salvation was absolutely assured in Jesus Christ because of His grace. And then I listened to Terry Virgo teach on grace, and I realized the gospel of grace cannot be the gospel and grace cannot be separated. The gospel and grace are, they have to always be together. And he said this, and it's a long quote, but it will go up there for you to read. Remember, God has accepted us. The gospel of grace is a message of breathtaking freedom. It must be embraced with faith and thanksgiving. You are thoroughly accepted just as you are. Jesus Christ is your righteousness, and He is never going to change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. When you wake tomorrow, He will still be your righteousness. Before you have done anything to enjoy God's favor, you, you, ha, um, you have to earn nothing. Your spirit needs to bask in the brilliant sunlight of this reality. You need to know it inwardly and celebrate it on a daily basis. In other words, that as we go out, get up to live for the Lord... We already know His love and righteousness spoken over us so that as we go live in freedom and grace, we do it out of freedom and grace, not guilt and shame to try and earn a righteousness that's not our own. So Terry Virgo saying, Behold God in His grace and you will be changed. 
as I stood waiting for a bus in East Perth, I meditated on Killer's tweet. Again, thinking, how can someone so smart say something so simple? I'm not getting it. And the bus was late, so I thought I'd just think about it. Meditating is a way of, that sounds a little bit too deep and intellectual. In truth, I was standing in the sun confused and irritated. So I thought. He says, we are, he says this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And as I stood there and the bus arrived, a wordless song, a dancing without music, an indescribable joy, and a lightness filled my soul again. And I realized this is the most thrilling truth. Why? I realized in that moment for the first time in my life, maybe, I had to hide nothing. I had to cover nothing. I am far worse than I think. But He knows it. And I'm more loved than I can imagine. Well, then there's no shame and no guilt. And I can walk freely with Him and accept whatever He wants to change in my life. I don't have to excuse it or hide it because I know He loves me and He's for me. So the gospel is news that must be gotten. So it's not only good news that God has sent Jesus to die in our place. The news implies that there's freedom from every oppressive matter, master, that we, no lo- we are no longer slaves to sin or self-effort or religion or guilt or shame or pride or arrogance or insecurity. We need to hide nothing of ourselves from uh, the one who loves us, who's redeemed us and who holds us for eternity. So the gospel is good news that must be gotten. And then lastly... The gospel is good news that must be gotten and applied. So not only does the good news of the gospel when gotten cause our hearts to sing and dance and experience indescribable joy, and not only will we agree that it is the most thrilling news we have ever heard, but we must apply the gospel to life so that we can keep growing in a gospel worldview. We must begin to see all of life through the lenses of the gospel. So getting up in the morning with a gospel worldview is completely different to anything else in this life. When God made the world, and I'm just going to take you through it real quick. When God made the world, there was perfect harmony in all creation. Every physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual need was fully met. Need didn't even exist because it was always met with fullness. It didn't know itself. There were no inequalities, no violence or vengeance, no competition, no inferiority or superiority, no use, use people, no abuse of people, no fear, no guilt, no shame, no harsh rules, no harsh rulers, no rebellion against authority. People lived with curiosity, wonder, love, and joy. People were in awe of God, listening to and obeying Him. They were not afraid of Him. They didn't try to hide anything from Him. They walked with God, talked with God, learned everything about creation and themselves from God. They did not try to kill God as they did Jesus. And they did not declare Him God as philosophy has done. Sorry, they did not declare God dead as philosophy has done. Then Tripp writes this, in an instant, just to jump into the story, in an instant, fear, guilt, and shame became standard human experiences. 
People who once lived in perfect harmony now accused, deceived, and fought for control. Weeds and disease became daily concerns. People began to desire what was evil and do what was wrong. Rather than submit to God's authority, they lived as their own gods. The world that once sang the song of perfection now groaned under the weight of the fall. Sin altered every thought, desire, word, and deed. It created a world of double-mindedness and mixed motives, self-worship, and self-absorption. People desired to be served, but they hated serving. They craved control and nurtured the delusions of self-sufficiency. They forgot their creator, but worshipped his creation. Rather than loving people and, um, and using things to express it, people loved things and used people to get them. For the first time, people wept from grief within and suffering without. And that's the world we live in. Fortunately, God wasn't willing to leave the world like this. And so using all of history and creation, he began writing his plan in time and space until Jesus came to earth and declared, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. What changed everything? The gospel. What changed the way we view life? The gospel. What brought a new worldview into a fallen creation? The gospel. The only way to understand the world as God sees it is through the gospel. Other than that, we're stuck in a world still rebelling from God. Or at least as an outcome of a rebellion from God. So Jesus not only calls us to himself, but he calls us to join in his redemptive work of creation. So the gospel is not only what God has done for you that we receive good news to receive. It tells us about what God is doing in all the world and calls us as uh, his, his people to join him in this redemptive work. Is there a sin you cannot break free from? Are you single and feeling anxious about being married? Has your marriage fallen short of what you vowed it would be? Have you experienced disappointments, broken promises, dashed hopes? Have friendships let you down? Has your job caused you stress? Are your children on a journey that causes you great pain? Does fear rule your heart? Does money cause insecurity? Has the government let you down? Do you see injustice? Does the future look bleak? The gospel tells us that God is redeeming everything and calls us to join in this. Perfect harmony, no shame, no guilt, no fear, no wars, no anger, no violence or vengeance, no injustice, no poverty, no sickness, no sorrow. Redemption of all things through harmony with God again. And this is why when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them to say that this is how you pray. Father, your kingdom come and your will be done. Because that's what he's doing. And we're praying ourselves into the story. We get up in the morning because the gospel speaks of hope in a hopeless world. It speaks of change towards redemption. Change isn't only possible. Change is the only thing that God's on about all the time. The Bible calls this change redemption. The gospel is news that must be grabbed and applied. Let me just give a few examples and I'll pray and Josh will lead us in communion. The single person in this world goes on a date, right? Hoping to meet someone who will accept them and love them and desire them. The single Christian 
knows that they are eternally and profoundly accepted and loved and desired by God. They may go on a date, but whether the person accepts, loves, and desires them does not make or break them. A single person in this world may desire companionship and family. The single Christian knows that Jesus has drawn close to them, promising never to leave them, giving them His Holy Spirit. But what about fruit? What about what comes out of fellowship? The single companion of Jesus bears incredible fruit by the Spirit of God. Listen to Paul, a single, a single disciple. In fact, of all the 12 disciples, uh, Paul not one of them, but of all those 12 that we know of, Peter was the only one married. A single man, um, Paul, a single man, he says, My dear children, he's writing to a church, My dear children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. To the Galatians, um, uh, to John writes, uh, the great apostle John writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. John didn't have children. He's talking about Christians. To Timothy, Paul writes, to, um, my beloved child. Timothy wasn't Paul's child. Uh, to Philemon, uh, Paul writes, I became Onesimus' father while I was in chains. Onesimus didn't need adoption. He was a grown man. The fruit of the Spirit, the Bible talks about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. These are things that others get from us. I, through the Spirit, it produces fruit. The fruit in my life hopefully gives you kindness. As you walk with the Holy Spirit, you bear fruit in your life. You give me joy and love, and patience. And as the single person fellowships with God, and as Jesus as their companion, incredible fruit abounds. A person in this world may apply for a job that means financial security. It may be the dream job. It may be the thing they've worked their whole life towards. This may create some anxiety in them. But a person who has, under, who has gotten the gospel and applied it already knows that they are eternally secure in God. That God gives them the air they breathe, the gifts they have, the skills, the competencies, the days to live, the opportunities that God opens doors and closes doors. And so they may apply for the job, they may go to the interview, but whether they get it or not, it doesn't make or break them. This really happened. A director of a show had an intern... And the intern made a mistake on a live production and the board uh, was called together to figure out what went wrong and what heads were going to roll. And the director went into the meeting and said it was his fault. The board was confused. Why would the director make such a rookie error? Why would a seasoned veteran make such a basic mistake? But he took, the, he took it. He didn't get fired, but they kind of looked down on him for his silly mistake. The intern was surprised that they didn't lose their job and asked the director why. And the director said this, I'm a Christian. I believe that Jesus sent his son to come into this world and to take my place on the cross and to stand in my place and receive what I deserved 
in my place and to give me what I don't deserve, His grace. And since I found that out and put my faith in Jesus, I've asked God that He would give me an opportunity to do that for someone else. And today I got it. And I'm thankful to you. I've been looking for an opportunity to stand in someone's place and take what they deserve. And the director couldn't be happier. And the intern kept their job, upskilled, but walked away understanding the nature of the gospel. Not just the simple message, but how it works out in our lives. The gospel must be gotten and applied. When we wake up in the morning with the hope of the gospel, we find that our lives have been drawn into a great redemption story. Every day is an adventure in the kingdom of God to pray it into our city, to bring it into our city, to see grace working through our lives. Today, in the collective suffering our city feels, we have a moment in history, probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reflect the gospel. Our city, our nerves are on end. And as Christians, we have an opportunity to take a message of undeserved grace and speak that over our leaders and over our neighbors. We have an opportunity to speak in ways that astound people and show patience and kindness and hopefulness that's beyond today and tomorrow. If I go into a foreign country, I try as best to be an example of, of Christ. It's easier in a foreign city harder in your own. It's easier to be a good guest in someone else's house than it is to be in your own. If I go to Singapore, I take my shoes off when I walk into someone's home. And then I realize my socks have holes. And it's embarrassing. If I go to Japan, I'm six foot four, I'm not made to sit on the floor, but I do. Knowing that in an hour's time I'll get up and parts of my body will hurt that I didn't know existed. And when I'm in Perth, I'm also an ambassador of the same kingdom. This is not our home. This is not where we end. We're from another place. Of the kingdom of God full of redemption and love. And as we enter our city and our cafes and our workplaces and our schools, we enter seeking to put Jesus above all and others before ourselves. Whatever that may look like. Preaching hope and redemption. Not seeking what people deserve. We don't want what we deserve. We are people who seek what we don't deserve. People who seek grace. People who found freedom in grace. And that's what we seek to bring. We have a chance like maybe never before in our city. The gospel is good news. It must be gotten. And then it must be applied. And we'll see our city transformed in Jesus.